How's it going? Uh, am I audible? Is this on? <coughs> no, it certainly is. Oh, good for you. Well, I see you didn't have any place to go either. Uh, our condominium wasn't available. I speak the truth. <laughs> now, we'd be off someplace exciting, but our kids have finals. That's the second one, right? Well, I'm glad you came, so I had somebody to whom or with whom I might speak. One of my current hobby horses is a teeter-totter. And that's a good mixed metaphor with which we might begin. The teeter-totter image that I used several weeks ago needs uh, some further articulation. But I begin from an oblique angle with a quotation from Kierkegaard that I think will fashion what the problem is with the humankind on the teeter-totter. Because what the teeter-totter is, of course, is a metaphor of the opposites of life, which cause us to be unbalanced. And two of the great opposites of possibilities are enumerated by Kierkegaard. He writes, in possibility, everything is possible. Hence, in possibility, one can go astray in all possible ways, but essentially in two. I suffer the little children to come unto me <laughs> and forbid them not. possibility, everything is possible. Hence, in possibility, one can go astray in all possible ways, but essentially in two ways. One form is the wishful yearning form. The other is the melancholy. On the one hand, hope. On the other, fear, anguished dread. Hope or dread. Kierkegaard felt, if you have read him in fear of trembling and some of these other primary works, that the two great possibilities for humankind are melancholy and hope. The hope is realized, though, only through the real, not through the imaginary. And therefore, one has to stare the reality in the face in order to come to the hope. Now, one cannot skirt around the reality in order to go to a Pollyanna kind of hope that only emphasizes the positive, eliminates the negative, and doesn't mess with anything in between. Now let me rehearse just for a moment a simple, if not simplistic, image and metaphor of the teeter-totter and the human ego and soul as a attempt to arrive at some integration or balance in what continues to be the unbalanced state of one's own nature. 
If we remember about the ego, which is the center of consciousness, the nature of the ego is that the ego only tolerates those things that are tolerable consciously. So everything about one that one is able to consciously tolerate rests in consciousness. Now that doesn't mean that that therefore is the sum and substance of one's personality, because all those things that are intolerable consciously don't go away. They rest somewhere. Now, if we take the image of the teeter-totter, everything on the right-hand side, let's say, are those things that we are able to tolerate. On the left hand are all those things that we find intolerable. And the ego is taught these things because you remember the first question the ego asks of what are the rules for making it here, and the environment, particularly authority figures that are giving nurture, literally and figuratively, determine what the rules are for making it in this place. And so the ego begins to differentiate not only itself as a living organism, but also begins to differentiate those things that are painful, destructive, or harmful for those things that feel good and gain approval. And so human beings begin their journey by building a kind of likeness and darkness, a consciousness and unconsciousness, an ego and a shadow, and begin to build an unbalanced picture of life based on those things that are acceptable by the environment. I used those examples two weeks ago, that if you're in one culture, the first thing you do when you go into a holy place is take your shoes off. In this culture, no shirt, no shoes, no service. I remind you of uh, that wonderful store on the beach in California that said, no shirt, no shoes, no sweat. So, depending on what culture you're in, there is beginning to develop a high degree of relativity about what's appropriate. I'm not talking about morality so much as I'm talking now about what's acceptable. Belching at table is not appropriate at my mother's table, but in certain cultures, if you do not belch, the hostess will be concerned that you didn't enjoy your meal. Now, so we develop all of these kinds of acceptable behavior things that are good, and these things are bad, light and dark. And we begin to develop a fairly significantly unbalanced view of life. Now, there's something about the nature of life or the nature of reality or truth, whatever the synonyms are for the source of the mystery for you, that will not allow us to remain one-sided. As we journey in our life, the ego is the outward journey, it reaches an apogee, a satiation, where all of the external things are no longer satisfactory. Is this all there is? How come I have lived a full life and I'm so unfulfilled? And so there is always this calling toward the darkness, the unlived life, that which has not been known, that which I'm called to that carries with it more substance, more essence than that which has been thus far acceptable. And so we're called into the darkness. We are kicked into the darkness and dragged into the darkness. And if we ignore the darkness long enough, we will become that which we have ignored. And so the worst people in the world 
are the hypocrites or the self-righteous who have no darkness at all. Those are the people who are living the biggest lie. Now there's a dialogue that continually goes on between the shadow voice and the ego voice. Now, one of the things about the ego you must remember is that the ego wants to survive. And the ego learns through experience that there are certain things that are very dangerous for ego survival. And so it seeks to avoid those things. And it's been told by its environment. It'll be different for, for each of us, but in some ways the same for all. I'll trade you my fear for yours. I don't understand why you're afraid of that. And you won't understand why I fear this because of what I was taught in my early experiences. And for many of us, at the time we were hurt, we couldn't differentiate between physical and psychological pain, so it really doesn't make any difference. That is to say, uh, when I was badly burned at age six, that remnant of pain is not the scar on my leg, but the scar on my psyche, which wants me to avoid pain because I couldn't differentiate the difference at that age between psychological and physical pain. In some ways, I still can't. And so anything that's going to hurt me psychologically, I want to keep in the dark. The irony, of course, is that that which is in the dark is that which holds the power. And so I continue to segment my life and not enter those things that I fear or hold the potentiality of pain. Now, Kierkegaard helps us because we have these two choices, and that is hope or dread. Well, be it for me to disagree with Kierkegaard, except I don't really think finally that those are two choices. I think those are two realities that both will be true. In the same way, no guts, no glory, uh, no hope without dread. Because the pain is a reality, it must be integrated consciously. It must be accepted as a part of the process. Anybody who doesn't is ignorant or foolish. And anybody who promises you that you can get whole without recognizing your brokenness is not whole themselves. And so whatever your particular uh, brokenness is, whatever your particular obsession or possession or addiction might be, awareness is the only way you get well. But there is no way to become aware without going into the dark and through the pain. Each of us is living our own myth, you know. That's why the myths are so helpful to us. That's why the truth gets communicated through the mythology is because the ego thinks that's a wonderful story. And the facts are, when we begin to read the stories, we begin to realize at some level that each of us holds within our own psyche a hero and a heroine. And as surely as the hero or the heroine in the story, the myth, be it a religious myth or just a myth, that the hero and the heroine always have to slay the dragon and cross the water to get to the other side. 
are given the task of integration or completion in order to become whole. And we see that as exciting, and we become cheerleaders for those who must slay the dragon, who must suffer the woundedness that comes through the fight, who must all but die gasping for one last breath to cross the river to get to the other side. And we cheer them on. We are enabled by them as they ennoble themselves to us through their willingness to take the risk, to go into the darkness, to slay the dragon in order to become the hero or the heroine. And yet, when we're called upon to do the same, we say, no, I am afraid, I dread the journey. And yet we have been given the hope that's what the myth is about, be it the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joseph, et al., or the story of the one who died in order to live. Now, why is it? I don't know the answer to this, except that it's my life vocation, and I don't mean priesthood, I mean personhood, to be enabled and ennobled by this story called Christianity that I will take those tentative steps down the teeter-totter not seeing it as walking the plank into the abyss of fear and dread, but seeing it as the only hope for becoming whole. Then I move slowly with tentative steps, enabled by the sacraments, the symbols, and the story, and the community of faith, all the saints who have gone before, to begin to take those tentative steps to slay my dragon and to make my swim through the darkness in order to get to the other side and to realize that I don't have to be lonely as I walk the narrow realm or ridge, but I do have to do it alone. And the dialogue that goes on, because the shadow voice, which is in the darkness, says, don't come. Stay where you are. If you stay where you are, you will be mediocre and entertained by the insipid, but you'll always know exactly who you are and you'll always be at your best. Stay mediocre and discuss the insipid. That's what the shadow wants. It is not the shadow that beckons you into the darkness. It's God. The shadow is the one who says, you're exactly right. There's nothing wrong with you. Stay right where you are. Deny, repress, and project. It's somebody else's fault. Stay where you are. Don't come near here because there we know exactly who you are and if you enter here, you'll have to become something new. There you are secure. You know exactly who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And they're easy to tell because the ones who disagree with you are the bad, and those who agree with you are the good. Stay right where you are, and don't take one step toward this darkness, because if you enter here, you will die. This is a grave. And don't let those people fool you who beckon you into foolish things, because they will lead you into the darkness. Stay where you are. Be satisfied to discuss the stock market and the Astros because then you don't have to be involved with anything that's painful. It requires no commitment. If you discuss the Astros, 
you don't have to take it personally. Don't you dare ever share your deepest or innermost thoughts with another because then they'll use it against you. Don't take any risk in human relationships and let somebody see what you really like because they might not like what they see. Don't ever tell anybody who you are because then you'll know yourself. Stay over here where it's perfect, it's right, it's good, and it's nice. Just like your mother told you. Don't dare come into the darkness. Well, and of course, the ego's dialogue and part of the conversation goes something like this. You know, you got to take care of yourself in this world. If you can't help yourself, nobody else can. I think I'm going to stay right where I am because I know this place. I think what I will do is become rigid. I think I would rather know everything that's right rather than take the risk of being wrong. There's no fool like an old fool. I think I will say here where it's safe, I'll stay with the good job, the 2.5 children, <laughs> the station wagon, the barbecue, and the sheepdog. I've had all of those. I'm not going to take any risk in becoming more than I am because it's really, if there's anything wrong with me, it's not my fault. Well, they've told me that it was my mother and father that caused me to be this way or my heredity or my environment. And so if I just stay right here, at least I know who I'm not. I don't want to take any risk because my greatest fear is non-being, and when I go into the dark, I can't see who I am. That darkness over there looks and feels very much like a grave. I think I'll just stay here, know who I am, avoid the pain, be satisfied with the mediocrity, and how about those astros? Now, it seems to me that the voice of God in all of this is the most enigmatic voice because the voice of God is the voice that says, if you stay where you are, you don't stay where you are. You become less and less. That if you take a step into the darkness, you become more than you were before. That if you go ahead and ask the next question, give yourself permission to take one step with one more question, 
than you will know more than before. It is a wicked gate, though, the voice of God says. Once you know, then you can't not know. And once you become aware, you can never be unaware. And once you've tasted just a little ecstasy, you'll realize that you won't live in agony for long. The problem that I get from the voice of God is the voice of God says to me, now that you've come through the gate, you can't go back. You can't regress. You can't remain. You must now be committed to a continual life of taking on more. That if you stay where you are, you won't remain the same. You will begin to disintegrate. And you must ask another question at any age. What is it that I'm called to be? With whom am I called to be? And how is it that I am to become what I was created to be? And what will happen to me if they don't approve? What will happen to me if they don't understand? And the ego questions are, will I disappear and die if I become something that they don't understand or agree with? I think the voice of God just gives us these choices. And the agony and the ecstasy is the freedom to choose. It is the agonizing freedom to have to make the choice. And what we in this culture have learned to do egocentrically with agony is anesthetize it. Be it the great opposites of the monastic vow, remember, chastity, poverty, and obedience, sex, money, and power. You realize that the monastic vow was to be very conscious of how important these things are to human beings by lifting them to the forefront of consciousness and making a choice. Rather than denying them, the monastic vow is not saying sex is bad, money is worse, and power is the worst. What monasticism is saying is that there's good and glory and giftedness and difficulty, evil, and non-human qualities of these things. The monastic lifts them up and says, I think I will make a choice about these rather than letting them control me. And so, chastity, poverty, and obedience is a response in a monastic vow to the conscious choice about who's in control. Sex, power, and money are ways that we anesthetize having to make choices. Now, those who are aware make good choices, even though sometimes they are perceived to be bad. For instance, the stupidest thing that a corporate executive could do would be to leave his work and go teach in the inner city in a public elementary school. He's gone crazy. Or, as I said two weeks ago, for a 
a cute little Montessori teacher to open a hospice for dying AIDS patients. That's crazy. Don't do it. Stay over here on the right where everything is pristine and nice. I mean, don't do a crazy thing. Don't take any risks. Don't be a fool. There's a difference between being a fool for Christ's sake and a damn fool. Stay over there. Go for the gold. Because it will assuage lots and anesthetize the freedom of the choices. Now this dialogue goes back and forth. So much so that in my human experience, I get so confused about who's speaking. In my own life, not just to me, the voices within me. And then, of course, the voices on the outside. And the problem is uh, the shadow is a ventriloquist. And since the ego has no relationship to the shadow, that is, I don't know these things about me. That's why they're there. I have repressed them. They are intolerable to me. And so that's a field day for the shadow. And so the ego, or the shadow wants the ego to think that it's right and that it's good. And then it becomes a ventriloquist and it speaks its way through the right and good voice. Remember? The one that got the biggest laugh was this one. Oh, listen, I'm, I am not at all concerned about getting the thank you note. I just wanted to know if you got the present. That's a little more tolerable to us than some of the real evil things that are said in the name of love. Just because I care about you, I hate to be the one to tell you. Watch out when somebody says, it's for your own good. The shadow is a ventriloquist. There's nothing wrong with me all of these other paranoid people who are afraid of me. And these voices come to me, and I hear voices. I will admit it publicly. I hear voices. The thing that's so difficult for me is each of them is my own, and they're saying different things, sometimes contradictory and paradoxical things. My life has lived on this teeter-totter like Mickey Mouse with the little angel and devil on his shoulder, you remember? Do it. Don't do it. <laughs> the interesting thing to me is that I've learned through the years, just by experience and reflection upon it, that what I thought was the angel saying, don't do it, was actually the ventriloquist devil who'd thrown his voice and was really calling me into the mediocre by not doing whatever it was that I felt I was called to do, but I was afraid to do because I was living in dread, the melancholy. And sometimes what I thought was God calling me into newness was evil trying to destroy me. So I have been left with some choices, and that is that I can just ignore all the voices and stay right where I am. Or I can try to use what God has been given me, experience, reason, feeling, friends, Holy Scripture, the Holy Spirit, God in Christ, 
All of those things are available to me so that I can take a risk because I've been given hope. Of the two choices of dread or hope, I've chosen hope. I'm going to be hopeful. I want to take a step now and then, realizing that sometimes I might step in something that's not very nice. I'm going to enter the darkness just tentatively. I'm going to surround myself with my symbols, take somebody who loves me with me, but I'm going to go. I don't know where it leads. I'm like Frodo. I just don't know where this ring is going to lead, but I have to seek it. This is the nature of the Christian journey. And I've always thought it was interesting and ironic that many of those who call themselves Christians are those who refuse to journey and become rigid. They are the pillars. They have become rigid and they support a system that keeps things the way they are and wound up, wind up disintegrating into nothingness. Now, I remind you too as I seek to complete this lecture that we're not left then as mindless, instinctual rats who just run back and forth across the teeter-totter. That we have been given an image and a strength and a hope which is the fulcrum. And the fulcrum is the integrated experience of being aware of all that we can be aware of all the possibilities, all the possibilities. The center of integrating all the possibilities is that which balances us and integrates us. When one voice says, receive everything you can, and another says it's more blessed to give than to receive, what do we do? When one voice says, sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed, another voice says that the highest ideal is to choose to be celibate. What is the integrating of those? Well, it's the wisdom to realize when it's appropriate to give and when it's appropriate to receive and when it's appropriate to say yes and when it's appropriate to say no. be able to make choices. But what if I make a mistake? Or what if I get hurt? Or what if I'm wrong? We've been given hope. You can live your life in dread or you can live your life in hope. You can't live your life avoiding pain because it's going to come with either decision you make. What is our image, therefore, that gives us hope? Well, it is the spirit in general, which is called a soul in particular, a synonym is self. The symbol of the self is the one who climbs on the teeter-totter 
And rather than walking first into the light, walks right into the desert of darkness and takes evil on and says, offer me sex, money, and power. Let me have it. To go get reconciled immediately to the darkness. And the spirit drove him immediately into the darkness of the desert with the evil one. It didn't say, come, let's walk the known road, let's avoid any darkness. As soon as he was baptized, the spirit immediately drove him into the darkness. That's where the growth and awareness will come from. That's our image and our call from our first tradition what was the first thing Yahweh did to Moses sent him right to Pharaoh now if you are living your own myth and you want to be the hero or heroine of your own myth it is the self that is within you and you can stay in the castle and look pretty or you can dress up like a knight and not ever go anywhere. <laughs> or you can go out knowing that you're going to have to slay a dragon and you're going to have to swim a river in order to get to the other side. Your dragon is your dragon. My dragon is my dragon. I don't know what yours is. I know what mine is but I know each of us has one. The image for that is the one who starts the journey by going under the water and into the darkness to slay the dragon. And then, having done that, invites others to come on too. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I'll refresh you. You... Our call is to the cross. The way of the cross is the way of life. Now remember the image. I hope it never disappears from the forefront of your consciousness of the image of the one who is the integrating symbol, the one who balances all, is the one who stands at the fulcrum. The one who stands at the fulcrum is the one who stands with both feet, one in the light and one in the dark, and in order to be balanced, takes this position. This is the position of being human. There is no way other than the cross. This is the death that leads to life. The central symbol of our faith is the balancer who stands with a foot in the dark and a foot in the light on the fulcrum of the source of the mystery and stands where he can do no other. But I remind you, when he climbed finally into that posture after having gone to both sides, having seen both sides, when he took the posture and stood up and said, I will integrate both, he yelled out, why? 